Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Do thou stand for my father and examine me upon the particulars of my life? Shall I? Yeah. Oh. Oh, content. <laughs> this chair shall be my state, this dagger my scepter, and this cushion my crown. Thy state is taken for a joined stool, thy golden scepter for a leaden dagger, and thy precious rich crown for a pitiful bald crown. <laughs> well, and the fire of grace be not quite out of thee, now shalt thou be moved. Give me a cup of sack to make my eyes look red, that it may be thought I've wept. <laughs> for I must speak in passion, and I will do it in King Cambyses. Well, here is my leg. And here is my speech. Harry, I do not only marvel where thou spendest thy time, but also how thou art accompanied. And yet, there is a virtuous man whom I've often noted in thy company, but I know not his name. What manner of man, and it like your majesty? A goodly, portly man, in fact, and a corpulent, of a cheerful look, a pleasing eye, and a most noble carriage. And as I think his age, some fifty... <laughs> or by your lady, inclining to three score. And now I remember me, his name is Falstaff. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. You have joined us for the second act of Henry the Fourth, Part One. And I am joined today by... You guys, welcome you back right? for Act Two. Brandon LeBlanc. We launched, of course, with Act One and all of the kind of like political maneuverings um, around these two civil wars in the opening act of Henry the Fourth, Part One. And now we're going to kind of turn our gaze back toward the tavern, um, back toward some hijinks by Hal, the prince to King Henry the Fourth. And his buddy, Falstaff, this, depending on who you are, either gregarious and lovable or gregarious and grotesque character, I think we kind of like weighed in 
last episode on what we thought about about Falstaff, and we're kind of in different places about him, but he kind of, for me, he really steals the show. Love him or hate him, he really steals the show here in Act Two. So um, before we dive in, I just want to give a little bit of background so that we are all kind of on the same page about where we are in this play. At the end of Act One, all sorts of schemes are happening um, from Hotspur, this kind of great general who's battling on behalf of England, on behalf of Henry IV, on the front. And he, we find out late in Act One, actually has, he has eyes on the throne. He thinks that Henry IV is getting old. And so he's marshalling these different um, lords, different generals to join him in an attempt to take the throne back, take the throne from Henry IV. Of course, Prince Hal is the son of Henry IV, but Prince Hal is just not really worth much right now. So at the end of Act One, the plot is set. There's going to be an attempt to overthrow Henry. But now we join Act Two with a different sort of plot. It's basically a plot by Falstaff and his buddies to, um, to just basically rob some rich people and get their money. So you guys, do you enjoy this part of the act? It's, it's, it's hijinks. It's kind of funny. It's, um, it's lowbrow humor as contrasted with the highbrow affairs of state that we were preoccupied with in act one. How does this change suit you, Brandon? Do you kind of like enjoy going back to the rabble rousing? I like the rabble rousing and also thank you for asking me first. I feel like y'all really <laughs> dominated the conversation last week and I appreciate more of a chance to talk. Uh, no, I do. I think uh, the rabble rousing is fun. I think we, we need to see more of where uh, Hal is at this point in his, in his journey. We get a little bit of that in the first act, but also I think there's a lot in here that uh, just kind of shows how seriously he's even taking this himself and, 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 and some of these people himself. Um, it's interesting. It, it, we get a lot of really interesting interaction between him and some of these characters in the lower, the lower story mm-hmm. that I think are pretty poignant for him. So it has to start kind of start here. Yeah. So it kind of sets up that later. Heidi, scene do you enjoy in, the low uh, brow? Do you kind of gravitate toward the high brow? I mean, I'm Heidi mm-hmm. White. I'm mm-hmm. always going to gravitate towards the highbrow. However, I I think that there's so so as Brandon alluded to, there's so much going on in these earlier scenes. If Please. you don't mind, I'd I'd love to take a little shot at it, along with the rabble rousing, which is, I mean, that is that is there. Don't miss that. It's 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 real and it's fun. Uh, but there's also. As Brandon said, I love the word poignant that you used. I think that there is a lot of poignancy in these scenes if you have eyes to see it. First is Hal is quite, I mean, you arguably quite cruel to Falstaff. Like he's joking there's some like uh, buddy, buddy kind of like guy interaction humor, right? But mm-hmm. he takes it pretty far. He in, he robs Falstaff at knife point in disguise and then leaves him uh, to walk back to London. And it's quite far. He's in Charing Cross, which is pretty far from London. And we know how much, how hard this is on Falstaff because he says like a right. short distance yeah. is like 70 miles to me. Um, and so there, 
we we are we're confronted in this scene with a, a picture of the uh, yeah. the inequality in their relationship on on both sides. Uh, so some people find false staff very distasteful. I admit I'm one of them, um, but. There's also, I think, don't miss the fact that Hal is playing a prank that crosses over from prank, some would argue, into cruelty here in this scene. And also another level of interpretation for this really, I think this is a really important scene and quite confusing to people who are reading it, right? If you're like one of those armchair Shakespeare readers, um, this is a very confusing scene. You're not exactly sure what's going on. Um, uh, but so... So it's easy to kind of like try to just figure out what's going on and miss some of these underlying things, which is why, you know, we talk about it on the podcast. So uh, that relational insight's important. And then I also think another thing that's important is, is this idea of um, on multiple strata on multiple levels of society, there's a, there's kind of a crumbling that's going on right now. Uh, there's a rebellion mm-hmm. that's forming, as you said, Tim, uh, which is a disintegration at a very high level of society within the upper class in that high plot. And then down here, we see it's dangerous to travel. It's hard for even honest people to get goods from one place to another without being robbed at knife point, not just one robbery, but a double robbery, a robbery within a robbery, right? Um, And so there's this this idea of like the crumbling or the disintegration of the culture that's happening in the reign of Henry IV uh, that uh, that's really important. Shakespeare's highlighting this, not just at the high plot, but also in the low plot. And I think both the high plot and the low plot need how to rise to his noble blood or to rise to his role. And right now it doesn't seem like we have a ton of evidence that he's going to rise to that role or do we, do you guys, as you read through act two, do you see glimmers of how I'm going to ask you first, Heidi, um, stepping into the role that his dad wants him to step into and that even Falstaff is kind of hoping that he'll step into eventually because that would mean Falstaff rises along with him. Are, are, are you seeing glimpses yet of that in Hal? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, important question. Yes, I think absolutely we see we see some direct literary foreshadowing here uh, in the scene uh, in the tavern. It's a very, very famous scene. And and Tim, I no, don't no, want to no. jump ahead, ahead if you want to save that till later. Should we? Okay. Okay. So one of Shakespeare's most famous plot devices uh, is what, you know, Shakespearean people call the play within a play. Uh, so, you know, we have the play that's going on in the globe. And within that, Shakespeare will often embed a play within a play. And we see that here in the tavern scene. This is why the tavern scene is so, so famous. Uh, So when we hear people talking about the tavern scene and the Henriad listeners, now you know what they're talking about. It's this. Uh, And this is when in the Boar's Head uh, Tavern, um, Hal and Falstaff creates Mm -hmm. a play at Hal's direction. He says, you pretend to be my father and you chide me for my irresponsibility at ignoring the uh, the the rising political tension in the country and uh, and hanging out with you drunkard Falstaff. You pretend to be my father. So Falstaff does. He he pretends to be Henry the Fourth in a in a brilliant. This is one of the reasons why this play is so. I just think it's so brilliant. Uh, it's this mirroring of doubles, right? Because for 
if how let's think about it as Hal as the prize and these two opposing father figures are vying for influence over this young man. Uh, you have the duty-driven true father king on the one hand who wants Hal to step up and realize his responsibilities as the, the future king and to, to help him handle this uh, political uprising. Um and, and then on the other hand, you have Falstaff, the desire-driven father figure who doesn't deserve it, right? He is the true corrupter of the youth, as, as they call him within this, in this play, within a play, which interestingly enough was uh, what Socrates mm. was accused of. All the, so Falstaff mm. is kind of this inverted Socrates, right? Um, who's spurring Hal on uh, not to love and good deeds, but to mm. debauchery and depravity. Um, and, and so you have these opposing father figures. And in this play within a play, they merge into one, right? Falstaff pretends to be, Falstaff, the diabolical father, pretends to be uh, uh, the the king, his actual father, who wants him to do the right thing, uh, but has no true affection for him. So you have this like merging of the two in this like really brilliant moment in Shakespearean drama. Um, and then the tide turns again. Uh, and Hal says, now let me pretend to be my father and you pretend to be me and defend Falstaff, right? As and his influence over me. And so Hal sp- becomes the king, he merges into the king in that moment and tells Falstaff all the reasons why he should not be in relationship with him. And then in this extremely poignant moment, to use that word again, then Falstaff argues mm-hmm. passionately for himself, pretending to be Hal and says, don't reject me. Don't banish me. And Hal, in the voice of his father, mm-hmm. or is it really himself, right? This is the interpretive question, I think, of the whole play, says, when when Falstaff says, don't banish me, he says, mm. I do, and I will. Yeah. And that is such a foreshadowing moment from Prince Hal as both merged with the king. He's pretending to be the king, his father in this moment. Like, think of the symbolic relevance of this. Says, I do, I will banish Falstaff. Foreshadowing what is going to happen and foreshadowing himself becoming or merging into the king. Right. So it's a I think one of the most mm. powerful moments in Shakespearean drama, I think it is so, so, so important to understanding the development of Hal as a king and saying in this moment, this drunken, revelrous moment, pretending to be his father, mm-hmm. I do, I will. Mm-hmm. And of course, it happens. Heidi, why does he respond that way? Why does he not kind of um, use the opportunity to I mean, argue... Uh, or to kind of imagine a scenario in which his father says, no, I'd never banish you. You're my son. I welcome you back. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think this is one of the most psychologically rich Shakespearean plays. That's why it's my yeah. favorite. Cause that's my favorite level of interpretation. There's multiple levels of interpretation with Shakespeare, any great work of art, but psychological is where I, that's like my wheelhouse. That's what I love. So I, I think that this whole idea of the King merging with 
with Henry and Henry merging with Falstaff and Falstaff merging with the king. It's like these multiple levels. You're not quite sure in this play within a play who's talking and what their motives are, whether this is and 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 also along with that complexity, there's also another rich layer of complexity, uh, which is in every one of Shakespeare's history plays and is absolutely essential to interpreting the plays, which is the contrast between the king as a man and the king as a king, right? There is a difference between a man and a king. And when a person becomes a king, they now have two levels of responsibility that are very, very hard to reconcile themselves as a leader with themselves as a person. And and so along with kind of the triangulated relationship between Henry IV, Falstaff, and Prince Hal, you also have this other layer of Prince Hal and his father. Uh, and they're, the distinction that they have to wrestle with that Falstaff doesn't, of what does it mean to be a king and what does it mean to be a man? So even in Prince Hal saying, I do, I will banish you, Falstaff, because I cannot be, it cannot be that you, Falstaff, the low plot can possibly be a proper mm. counselor and father and, mm. uh, and, and Socrates figure, right? You're, he's not fit in or, to be the companion of a prince mm. and let alone a king. Mm. And yet Prince Hal truly loves him. Or does he, right? There's, so there's all of this psychological complexity that goes into those two, those four mm. words, I guess three mm-hmm. words. I will, I do, I will. So we know from mm-hmm. that moment on that Falstaff is doomed and that Prince Hal is fully aware of that fact, but we don't know who's making the decision. Is it Henry? Is it, is it Prince Hal the, the man or is it Prince Hal the king, the future king? Or is it, or is it Henry IV as the influencer of this land and of his son? Who is banishing Falstaff? Or is it that Falstaff has brought yeah. it on his own head because he's unfit? So that, that's there's so much psychological complexity, and it's up to the reader uh, to to kind of wrestle with that for themselves. And then from now on out, we know that that's going to be a major thread within this play, and then in multiple plays because we have we have uh, the rest of the Henriad to see what happens to Falstaff and how Prince Hal becomes worthy of being king. Um, Hamlet, who also stages a play within the play. And there's a moment when he kind of realizes, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to have these players who are visiting the castle perform the murder of my father in front of my uncle, the murderer, and my mother, his new wife. And he has these lines that guilty creatures, I have seen that guilty creatures sitting in a play have been so struck by the cunning of the scene that presently they have proclaimed their malefactions. Like they have, when they see a performance, they're so moved that they speak the truth. And that's what Hamlet ends up hoping for. And there is something like the crucible of psychology so often in Shakespeare happens within a play staged on the stage and characters who are kind of like either involved in the play as in Hal or witnesses to the play, like Hamlet's father, Hamlet himself, are able to kind of like step outside themselves and look back at themselves in a way. I mean, 
You can say the same thing. This is why Jesus taught in parables so often. You find yourself in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know, and you can kind of say, yeah, I'm the Levite who crossed the, to the other side or um, the, the parable of the prodigal son. You can see yourself in one of the two brothers. It's easier to kind of name that. And yeah, I think Shakespeare, this move to stage within the stage, these plays so often renders really powerful cathartic insights from the characters. And it does seem to me like Shakespeare recognized that this is what his art is about. And just in case we didn't get it, the great playwright stages plays within plays to kind of help illustrate maybe what his ultimate goals are. I'm reluctant to say that because we have talked many times on this podcast about Shakespeare kind of veering away from moralism. He's so often slippery and he seems to equivocate on um, whether or not the good get their just desserts and whether or not the evil get their just desserts. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So I, I don't want to frame Shakespeare as just this, as a moralist. He certainly, certainly has a moral compass and he's trying to teach, but... um the point of his plays is not merely to instruct in virtue. I think it's a secondary, I think it's a secondary objective for Shakespeare. Um, Brandon, please. But even if that's, uh, even if that's not the point of his play within the play, it serves to, to make the characters, um, what you yeah. call uh, moments of catharsis or epiphany um, real, right? They, it's what happens to us when we, like you just said, when we listen to the parable of the, uh, of the prodigal son, we have, yeah. in, we are enlightened by that story, right? We learn something from that story. And so it serves to move his characters on and have epiphanies of their own in a way that's very natural to how people. So his plays feel real, like, right? like you know, what their, their changes of mind, their changes of heart that are influenced by those, by those plays within the play feel real to the reader or to the viewer. Um, and, and what I love about your question about, you know, just the how needing to, to rise up both in the lower and the upper story and, and, and Heidi's point about the, the, I mean, all, all the psychology that's in that scene is that I think even yeah. Hal knows he has to, right. He, the, the very beginning of, of, or not the very beginning, but in the middle of, of scene four, when he tell, tells to Francis, um, or he's trying to get start the little joke with Francis that with the server. Um, he says, I am not yet of Percy's mind, the hotspur of the North that he kills me. Yeah, yeah. And he goes on to talk about how Percy's about his work. He's about the work of being the, the Duke of wherever he's the Duke. He says, I am not yet though. Like he, he has the luxury of his father's concern with those things. So he doesn't have to be right now, but there seems to be this, this, sense that he's got to pull himself up out of that. And what to me is so fascinating, I'm, I'm not nearly as well-versed in the entire canon as the two of you, but it, this play within the play and handling of the high and low story seems uh, somewhat uh, particular, even within, even within Shakespeare, because the play within the play isn't some other story. It's, it's characters yeah. in this story, right? They're, they're play acting the King and Hal. And they're doing it kind of spur of the moment. There's no, they didn't script it out like the one, the one in Hamlet. And I think the, the high story and the low story in this play 
overlap in a way that many of the other ones don't mm. in, 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 in the sense that they ultimately merge the low characters get pulled into significant parts of the high story. Uh, and that's, that really happens in the person of false as, as we've alluded to. Um, he's about to be put in charge of, some, of a bunch of foot soldiers mm-hmm. at the end of this act. Right. Um, in service, in service of the King. And that still happens. That still plays out through Falstaff's shortcomings, but it's nonetheless, it's, it's a very different kind of a lower story and an upper story connection. And what struck me about that final part, uh, Heidi, that you, that you were talking about is that I don't know if this is just, uh, if this is in the original, you know, written text or whatever, but as they're going back and forth, it says as King, as Prince, as Prince, as King, you know, uh, when they're doing those parts, but then that last line, when the prince says, I do, I will, it doesn't have that little, that little caveat, which leaves it open to all the things you were talking about. But, but the last line that, that Falstaff says as the prince is banish plump Jack and banish all the world. Mm. And I think it's that all the world that he, when he says, I do, I will, he's responding to that whole thing. Right. And so there's a sense in which if it is Hal speaking for himself um, and speaking with some understanding of what he's going to have to become, it's this, it's this understanding that I, I have to banish all the world as the King mm. that I, like, like Heidi was alluding to as the man, you know, I would love to stay friends with all these people in the tavern, but as the King, I have to banish not just Falstaff, but all, all the world yeah. um, mm-hmm. to be the King. And so that leaving it, that, that ambiguity there, I think is just fantastic. I don't know. I just, to me, this seems like a very unique merging of the high and the low, the play within the play, even within Shakespeare's works. And I think it's maybe one of his best uses of, of both those kind of um, tools he uses in his plays, the, the high and low stories and, and the play within the play. One of the things that really stands, stands out to me about Hal's story in this play is that we know that he's going to end up kind of on the right side. Like we, we've made it clear, hey, Hal gets it together. Um, he comes to his father's side and he kind of like takes on this role. And I've been thinking about um, how roles, how aspiring to a role can be so important. I think especially in the lives of young men, that when you have a role that you want to achieve, you find yourself kind of um, taking very seriously, maybe for the first time in your life, like the ethical ethical injunctions. And I'm thinking, hmm. I, I had um, dinner with four friends of mine from college I, this week, and. One of them was my friend. I'm going to use his name because we tease him very openly and he laughs about it, what I'm about to kind of reveal on the show. My roommate, Jimmy, we were uh, roommates my freshman year. Jimmy was a great basketball player. He made the basketball team and he slept the first semester away. I mean, he hardly attended class. He attended basketball practice, but not chemistry class. And we just all assumed when we showed up for second semester that Jimmy had failed out, but somehow the school kind of left him, let him back in. He thought maybe he can have, you know, a second chance. And he just repeats the whole process. Second semester also fails out. 
And if I was to vote right there, like who is least likely to succeed in our whole class in college, I would have voted for Jimmy. I had all the evidence that Jimmy was just like, not going to really amount to much, you know? Hadn't seen Jimmy in probably 15 or 20 years. And he is a profoundly different guy. Like, and I think if, in telling a story, the thing that changed was Jimmy got married and he and his wife really took on the role of being foster parents. They put two kids through school and through college in both these foster kids. They have their own kids also, but both these, their foster kids are just doing great. They're just doing great. And I, I think of Jimmy's story in some ways as kind of parallel to Hal's, that what both of them really aspired to is they both embraced a role. In Jimmy's case, it was being the father to these children, being the husband to this wife, and he just took off. And I think in the same way, that's what's going to really drive Hal forward. He knows, like he knows, shouldn't be in this tavern. I shouldn't be stealing from all these nobles. I shouldn't be hanging out with Falstaff. I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be drinking myself to sleep every night. I shouldn't be doing any of these things. When's it going to change? When the role is kind of either forced on him or when he kind of like acquiesces to the role, then things begin to change and we begin to see what either was latent there or what was non-existent before. And he just decided, okay, now I'm going to act with courage. I'm going to act with fortitude. I'm going to be a man of integrity. And he stepped into it. Yeah, I think I love what you just said. And I, I don't know what? if you guys have noticed this ever, but I'm not a man. Um, but yeah, I know. Right. Um, but this, this play is, it seems to me, and yeah. you can speak into this. Yeah. So I'm, what I'm about to say is kind of like a question. <laughs> um, it seems to me that this is the, the, a play about the education of a king. Um, this whole, the Henriad is so much of that. Like, what does it mean to be a king? And what does a king do with the fact that he is also a man with desires of his own and relationships of his own? Um, and I think the most poignant for me the most poignant thing about this is, is a little bit of feeling like I, like as a woman, there's, this isn't mm. the same journey for me to, to, to womanhood as it is from what I have seen as, yeah. a, as, as it is a journey to manhood, this like a wrestling, like if you take this, this whole play um, as a metaphor to the condition of a man's soul mm-hmm. and the war between duty and desire, right? The, the, the duty father and the desire father, right? That is, that is within the soul of every man that is wrestling for dominance and influence. And those feel like they can't ever be reconciled, like they're enemies yeah. to each other, fighting for dominance of this, of this boy's journey to becoming a man. And as you, I really love what you just said about 
him having to step into a role, which right. no man I know is ever going to be a king. But in a sense, he is because he has because if if we take this as like a, a metaphor of the pilgrimage of the Christian life or even just the pilgrimage of the human life to be mm-hmm. crowned mm-hmm. Lord and master over himself. Right. And um and and there's there's a sense of nobody right. is worthy of that unless they choose to be. Right. And and Falstaff will right. always win so well unless said. there is a reason to be, so well sit said, on a throne Heidi. and become a man. Right. And and that is the reason why this is my favorite play, because I feel like being a woman, it is a different journey. It's just as profound mm. and shaking a journey to become a woman as it is to become a man. But yeah. this to me feels like a play about becoming yeah. a man specifically. And and I love being Mm-hmm. I love watching it and rooting for him and, and knowing that it's just so satisfying to me because I long for this for every young man, you know, especially as the mom of a, of a teenage son, right? Like watching this in a sense play out as from the position of a spectator, not like I'm not Falstaff or the King anymore. I don't have that power anymore over the heart of my own son. And, and to be like a bit on the sidelines, having influence, but not in the same way, like, and, 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 and wanting, and, and just like wanting him to be Prince Hal, because the thing about Prince Hal is that he doesn't become either. Like he doesn't become like the cold hearted, man that his father Mm -hmm. is drained of all humanity, right? Because he is a usurper. He doesn't belong on that throne. He stole it. And, and that, even though he stole it from Richard II, who wasn't a worthy man, there is still a sense of the divine right of Kings that is written into the soul of this play. And this whole, this whole Henry ad, even if we don't want it to be there, it's there. And, and so there's, there's a usurper on the throne and, and Harry has to learn how to not become Falstaff, but also not become his father, but become Mm -hmm. a man who's worthy of the throne. Who's like full of, who has like a, a a healthy and robust heart and chest, right? Um, He, he needs to earn it because he doesn't just get it from his father in the same way. And Shakespeare puts that, I think, into this play as well. And so I just am rooting for him so much. And one of the reasons I love it is because he becomes a king in his own way through his own journey of struggle. Um, and and with these two unworthy guides, right? And he has to figure out yeah. how to become a worthy king. Yeah, I, there needs to be a kingship that the desire can can willfully give itself over to and that isn't crushed by. Right. And so, uh, you know, we're all on the other, the Anacaranda podcast. And I think I've mentioned to you guys that I read that and Jaber Crow very closely together in the midst of my own wrestling of trying to figure things out. And um, both of those men, though they're so tied, those two stories are so tied together to me for the same reason that like, they're a little bit aimless and frustrated and at times frustrating to read um, until they find that thing that they kind of can can commit themselves to, and that can be that can be like Tim was talking about his friend becoming a father and parent to to, to foster children. It can be some combination of those things with uh, a vocation, but it is a different thing. At least, at least in my experience, you know, my, my wife has her own journey to womanhood, but I think she didn't she doesn't she didn't have the same 
restlessness that I had, mm. especially once we were married and, and starting a family. <laughs> um, and, and, and so what's interesting, I think, as you read on in the Henry ad is that you're exactly right. He doesn't, Hal doesn't give all the, himself all the way to one or the other, even in becoming the king. He He's able to incorporate this kind of every man, um, you know, uh, uh, time in the, in the tavern that he, that we see here where he can relate to the people around him and he can, he can make them laugh and, 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 uh, inspire their loyalty and those kind of things. We see that again in Henry V when he needs, when he needs to do that as King, right. When he's not using the iron fist to keep people fighting for him, he is appealing to their own sense of manhood in a way that's, that's appropriate. And so I think that that's, and, and Henry the fourth for whatever, you know, for all the reasons you've mentioned has been drained of that, that desire side, right. That, um, that maybe at one point fueled him. And now he's paranoid in some cases, right. He's, he's paranoid in that opening scene when, when, mm. uh, what is it? Mortimer's name even just gets mentioned, right. He's, he probably has made his presence a place that Hal doesn't want to be around, which is why he's not in the court to begin with, right. Which is where he should be in that scene. He, sh- he should be part of that conversation with Hotspur and, and Hotspur's father, who I'm drawing a blank on his title right now, but He's Northumberland. Not. Thank mm-hmm. you, Northumberland. Yeah. Um, and that scene should include the prince, but it doesn't. Or it includes well, it includes one of his younger brothers because he's been drained of that desire. And that, that I think you're exactly right. We see this kind of uh, being brought to the uh, two together. And I think y- y'all talked about it in the in the Richard II podcast about how you know there's a, it's this kind of series of people who aren't really fit to be on the throne that's worked itself worked out in. In Henry V, who's held up as kind of the uh, what do they call him? In, uh, the in the is mm. the mirror of all mirror. Christian kings. There you go. That's the one. The mirror of all Christian kings, right? So he's being he's being pushed into this spot by Shakespeare, at least, as being this kind of ideal type for for Christian kings, for English kings. And he gets us there through this whole this whole pattern of you know those who fall short before him, and then Hal's own. Kind of I think one of the things that of strikes me is it will become a bright difference between Henry IV, the father, and Henry V, the son, Prince Hal, is that Henry IV is trying to steer away from problems or away from threats. And Henry V seems to have capacity for understanding what the good is. Like, the Henry V speech, the famous St. Crispin's Day speech, is like... If we are marked it, to die, it is not we are steering now to away from potential harm. It is steering toward the good. Like, this is what will be remembered. Yeah, right. Once more, I, I remember the it, my friend Casey was rehabbing from an accident. She was like out on a four-wheeler, and the four-wheeler rolled over on top of her, and she kind of had to like teach herself, had to do all these basic things again, like ride a bike. Um, she had to learn how to run again and she was learning how to ride a bike. She tried, um, riding her bike through this cemetery with all these headstones as obstacles. And she just said it was the hardest thing to do because there's just no room for error. And she's kind of relearning how to ride a bike. And I said to her, you know, I wonder if you, instead of trying to avoid the headstones, try to ride between the headstones, like envision the path between the headstones. And then she did it on the way home. She was like, it was a miracle because I kind of concentrated on what was the, the good path instead of trying to avoid what were the bad things. And I think Henry, excuse me, Hal is going to see that eventually. Like this is like 
what really great leaders do, they don't just steer away from harm, but they can kind of articulate the bright path of the good. And we're going to see, not in this play, not in the next Henry the Fourth play, but in Henry the Fifth, how really kind of coming into his own and embracing that. You got, um, could that be a more metaphorical the bicycle journey, path? what you just said about your friend yeah, right? dodging <laughs> death through the, like relearning how to live yeah. by dodging the headstones? I'm like focusing on the way through. That is, like, can somebody or please a put that poster in a, a minimum story a or a poster. play or something? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With some really spooky music, like it's just kind of like, that is, is, is something that'll pop out of these metaphorical journey of life. That's amazing. Um, Okay. I want to set us up for act three. So behind all of the tavern scenes and this, this, this act has basically three scenes with our hero, Hal and um, Falstaff and one scene with Hotspur and his wife. Um, Hotspur is kind of negotiating to drum up an army so that he can attack Henry IV. I don't want to lose track of this thread, but I do want to wait until next week to really pick up our focus on Hotspur. So when we leave this act, Act 2, the king, Henry IV, has sent a messenger to call Hal to him. Hal, of course, is not carousing with Falstaff, et cetera, et cetera. But we're now at the point, entering Act 3, where um, the rebel army, led by Hotspur and company, is going to come in conflict with Henry IV. And the kind of, is auger the right word? A-U-G-E-R? The messenger is kind of a foreshadowing of this time where Howe's got to step into, Howe's got to make a choice. What kind of person is he going to be? So that's what to look for. That's what we should be looking forward to in act three. Anything else you guys that you want our readers to be paying attention to as they leave act two and enter act three? Heidi? I I was wondering, Tim, if it would be worthwhile to talk a little bit about the relationship yeah. between Hotspur and I kind of want to save that. Did you want to do that I, or I, save that? What are your thoughts on that? There is this long exchange okay. between Hotspur and his wife. Um, and I want to know <laughs> if that exchange, how much does it tell us about Hotspur? And everyone should go home and do a comparison and contrast with this, that, that conversation. That is a great idea. Portion. That is actually a totally. great idea, Brandon. Totally. Yeah. Yes. Because, um, actually. Can you give us a little context Brandon. for that? Either of you, for our listeners to know what you mean by that. Sure. So, um, Brutus is about yeah. to be in, in Julius Caesar. In Julius Caesar. Yes. I'm sorry. In Julius Caesar. Brutus is, a is surrounding the conference with, the co-conspirators depending um, on Julius Caesar's life on Julius Caesar's life. Brutus has a conversation with Portia. I think it's sandwiched. I think there's a, they're meeting a sandwich in between two parts of their conversation, but I, and now I have to go back and check. And she too wants to know more about what, what's going on. Um, she wants to be trusted by, by, by Brutus, like 
the lady Hotspur here. Kate. Um, that's probably not her actual title, but um, Kate. <laughs> she's of noble birth. She's of pretty, pretty serious noble stock. Um, in Portia's case, she's descendant of some of some pretty big Roman heroes, and both men kind of give them the stiff arm and, and don't listen to their counsel uh, as well as they should. However, the way that they kind of yeah. handle those conversations yeah. is is I think significantly different, um, and so it gives you a little bit of insight into maybe the character of Brutus versus the character of of someone like Hotspur. That's a great point, Brandon. I do want to pick that up. I think like a little compare and contrast next week would be a really enjoyable exercise. Okay, you guys, let's put a bow on it for act two. I'm looking forward to next week when we get together for act three, more political intrigue, a little bit less lowbrow tavern humor as armies begin to gather on the battlefield Thank you again, both of you, for joining us. Uh, Our listeners, of course, please find us on Facebook on our parent podcast Facebook page, which is the Close Reads Facebook page. All sorts of conversations about this play, about the last play that we did, The Taming of the Shrew, and of course, about the main um, novel that are being novels that are being discussed on Close Reads. We are just finishing up A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. And we will soon be reading a new book, Loving by Henry Green, that starts in two weeks. We'd love to have you join us on the Facebook page if you're interested in discussing either of those two books. Until then, thank you for joining us on The Plays The Thing. And as always, we wish you happy reading. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.